You're listening to the Grace Sermon Podcast with messages from Pastor Chris Twightman and the community at Grace Lutheran Church, Huntington Beach. We're a family church that exists to engage life together and impact our neighborhoods as disciples of Jesus. If you'd like more information about our church, please visit us online at gracehb.org. Now, stay tuned for today's message. And if you're new or you've been with us for a while, the book of Hebrews can be a challenging read for Christians. Challenging for Christians to understand today because this sermon delivered in the form of a letter draws on a number of specific Old Testament references and allusions that would have been comprehensible to any Jewish follower of Jesus living in the first century AD. But for us, living thousands of years later, facing a significant cultural distance, we have to do a little bit of extra work to get it. We have to dig into the history and the practices of Israel as recorded in our Bibles And this really hit home for us last week with the start of Hebrews chapter 7, the first 10 verses, as the writer reflected on Jesus being a high priest in the order of Melchizedek, quoting Psalm 110. We were asked in those first 10 verses of chapter 7 to consider a number of analogies between Melchizedek and Jesus, and in order to do that, we needed to go back to the book of Genesis in order to remember who Melchizedek was in the first place. And if you weren't with us, or if you were, and you got lost in all the details, here's a quick recap of last week's takeaways. Melchizedek, who was a king and a priest of righteousness and peace, foreshadows the coming of Jesus, who is both our king of kings and our great high priest. And the scriptural silence related to Melchizedek's background. We don't have anything besides Genesis 14 in that one reference in Psalm 110. Nothing said about his family line. There's no mention of the start or the finish of his priesthood. All of this indicates Melchizedek's order is by definition an order of one. The mystery of Melchizedek we learned last week prefigures the eternal everlasting priesthood of Jesus, which is without beginning or end. Today, as we look at the rest of chapter 7, you're going to hear those observations that I just summarized for you repeated again. See if you notice them as we read the scripture this morning. But the focus of today's text is explaining how and why Jesus' distinctive priesthood, while similar to the Levitical priesthood that served many, many years ago, is ultimately superior. And it also addresses why we needed a change, an upgrade from the former way of engaging our relationship with God and with each other. So let's read these verses together, and this is a long passage. The writer writes, if perfection could have been attained through the Levitical priesthood, and indeed the law was given to the people that established the priesthood, why was there still need for another priest to come? One in the order of Melchizedek, not in the order of Aaron. For when the priesthood is changed, the law must be changed also. He of whom these things are said belonged to a different tribe, and no one from that tribe has ever served at the altar. For it is clear that our Lord descended from Judah, and in regard to that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. And what we have said is even more clear if another priest like Melchizedek appears, one who has become a priest not on the basis of a regulation as to his ancestry, but on the basis of the power of an indestructible life. For it is declared, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The former regulation is set aside because it was weak and useless, for the law made nothing perfect. 
and a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath. Others became priests without an oath, but he became a priest with an oath. When God said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. Because of this oath, Jesus has become the guarantor of a better covenant. Now there have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in office. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Such a high priest truly meets our need, one who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins, then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. For the law appoints as high priests men in all their weaknesses, but the oath which came after the law appointed the son who has been made perfect forever. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In this long passage, there are several phrases or statements that should jump out at us. And some of them are going to come across the screen. This idea of the former regulation was set aside, that it was weak and useless, that a better hope has been introduced, or this idea that Jesus has become the guarantor of a better covenant, or this phrase that Jesus is able to save completely, that he always lives to intercede, that he truly meets our need. And then, of course, the grand finale of this passage, that he, Jesus, sacrificed for their sins, our sins, once for all when he offered himself. One of the things you'll notice in this passage is the continued use of the word better. And a little interesting fact, the Greek word for better occurs more times in Hebrews than in the whole rest of the New Testament put together. And that should really, if you've been with us these last couple of weeks, should come as no surprise as the writer has been repeatedly declaring to us, Jesus is better than all the rest. Jesus is in fact simply the best. But now the author begins to unpack why and how the way the truth, the life of Jesus is better. And you heard that he he does this by basically referring to what once was. And in order for us to appreciate the way, this new way, why this new covenant is better, we need to spend some time remembering the way things used to be. To begin with, the older or former covenant that is being referred to here is the arrangement God made with Israel through Moses. Specifically, It's the system of the Levitical priesthood. When the writer in the verses that we heard talks about a change in the priesthood necessitates a change in the law, as you'll see on the slide, this is what is being referred to. The Levitical priesthood, the sacrificial law, not the law, not the Ten Commandments. God's top ten remain the revelation of life as God created it to be, of all of our relationships, the way they're meant to be, with God, with ourselves, with each other. That God's top 10 is rules for life are the ideal or perfect version of all things. And God's rules for life have never changed. Remember, the heart of this law, loving God and loving one's neighbor as oneself, the summation of the Ten Commandments is the law Jesus came not to abolish, not to change, but to fulfill. What's being referenced here, very important, is the sacrificial law of the Levitical priesthood. 
And this sacrificial law was instituted to address the ongoing problem of sin. The undeniable fact that things aren't the way they're supposed to be. That we don't treat God, we don't treat ourselves, we don't treat each other as God intended. With love, in truth, with grace. Another way of expressing this is we never break the second great commandment, loving our neighbors as we love ourselves, without breaking the first great commandment, not loving God with all that we are and all that we have. The former covenant of the Levitical priesthood was crafted to repair and restore those breaches in our relationships that come as a result of sin. And outlined they are in a specific, nuanced, and excruciating detail in the book of Leviticus, something we actually went through several years ago if you were a part of our community at that time. And the law and the system of the priesthood was designed to be exhaustive in addressing the problem of sin. Exhaustive. And again, we need to dabble in this just a little bit because in our day and age, when we talk about sin, when we talk about things not being the way they're supposed to be in terms of our relationship with God, with ourselves, and with each other, we tend to frame sin in terms of intentional, deliberate, willful, knowing acts of defiance or rebellion. Lying, stealing, murder, adultery, and this, uh, by all means, is part of the way things are, not, they're, they're, things are not the way they're supposed to be, absolutely. And, but what's, what's, what's within that definition of sin is also the most common self-definition, even within the church, where people will say, well, yeah, that's wrong, but I'm basically a good person. And I want to just stop here if you've ever said that or thought that you're basically a good person, you know, that you're basically saying, I'm basically honest, I'm basically responsible, I'm basically peaceful, I'm basically safe. So what I want to ask you, if you've ever thought that or said that, is when exactly are you specifically lying? <laughs> when exactly are you specifically irresponsible? When exactly are you specifically violent? When exactly are you specifically dangerous? Something else that's being conveyed when we say this idea of, well, I'm basically a good person, is, well, you know, I, I, you know, I don't intentionally, purposefully do bad stuff. And we've created in our day and age this separation that everything that's wrong in the world is all the intentional stuff, the stuff that we intend to do, the willful rebellion and disobedience. The thing is, is and, and what we say is, as long as we mean well, as long as I meant well, as long as I didn't mean to do anything wrong, if it was an accident, if it was unintentional, then it wasn't wrong. I mean, it wasn't wrong. I mean, it was a mistake, but it wasn't wrong. It's no big deal. But the law of the Levitical priesthood what we find in Leviticus, right from the start, establishes that when it comes to the problem of sin, calling something an accident or unintentional does not negate the effects. Think about it this way. If there is intentionality and purpose inherent in life, we're here for a reason. Life matters. All lives matter. If there's intentionality and purpose inherent in all life, if our creator weaved a moral fabric, a sense of right and wrong into the tapestry of creation then violations to that moral fabric, any violations to that moral fabric, rip and tear apart the lives and the communities of which we are a part. The wrong things we do by mistake or accident are still wrong, and they bear consequences, even if we aren't aware of them. 
And so what we find in Leviticus, first seven chapters in particular, is a series of regular day-to-day offerings that the Lord provides as a way for his people to deal with the problem of sin, to atone for both the intentional, willful things, as well as the unintentional, accidental wrongs that inevitably happen in our lives and our communities on a daily basis. Priests who served as intercessors, mediators, representing God to the people and the people before God are set apart for the sole purpose of making atonement, of facilitating the different and specific offerings outlined in the book of Leviticus that account for all the ways our brokenness rears its ugly head in our lives and in this world. And the particulars of these various daily offerings are detailed, as you may or may not know, chapter after chapter. And they're graphic, they're multisensory, and frankly, they're messy. And most of us probably aren't familiar with this because most of us skip over this part of the Bible because we find ourselves overwhelmed by all the repeated prescriptions regarding blood, guts, and fat. When's the last time you read Leviticus chapter 1 through 7? When's the last time you saw that pop up in your daily devotional, (laughs) right? What we fail to understand is these daily offerings were bloody and messy because they were kept practical, relevant, and inseparable from one's day-to-day life, how life back then was lived together in community. So you engaged in grain, the harvest, the herd, the livestock, the cattle, Because that was life. That's where you lived. That was the stuff that relationships were built upon. That's how you were in community together. There was no compartmentalization of living. You know, go and do what you like. Act as you will. Treat God. Treat others. Treat yourself poorly Monday through Saturday. And then sober up with confession, repentance, and reconciliation on Sunday. That's the way we do it. Back then, every day, it was in front of you. We're broken. We're broken. This is broken. We need to continually recognize we're broken. We fall and we have to get back up. We fall apart and we have to come back together. Sin is trivial to us. I mean, let's just be honest. Sin today is trivial to us. It's a once a week proposition at its best. But what God tried to show his people was the problem of sin isn't just a day-to-day transactional issue. It's even bigger than that. Everything I just outlined for you was the start, but what God also showed his people is the problem of sin is even bigger than just being a day-to-day issue. And he demonstrated this through the institution of something we've talked about before, what was known as the day of atonement. You see, sometimes, or something, the daily offerings of the Levitical priesthood could not anticipate, as exhaustive as they were, they they dealt with the intentional and unintentional things we do, Right? The accidents, the mistakes, as well as the rebellion and disobedience. But something that the daily offerings of the Levitical priesthood did not anticipate were all the unrealized, unacknowledged sins in our lives. The place where your brokenness and mind leaks out and we're not even aware of it. We didn't even know. It wasn't even that we knew it. We didn't even know it to call it an accident or to call it intentional. All the times when we were completely unaware we, were, we did wrong. Just think about that for a second. It might, might stress you out a little bit. Think of all the dings we unconsciously inflict on each other. 
The thousands upon thousands of little, seemingly inconsequential snubs, slights, and jabs that we don't even recognize, but that harm another person. You ever had that happen? You ever had someone say to you, man, I mean, like weeks later, that really, really hurt me. It really, really hurt me what you said or what you did. And you're like, what did I say? What did I do? And they tell you, you're like, I didn't mean to do that. I didn't even know I did that. I didn't even know that's what I was saying. That's what we're talking about here. These marks cut deeper than we realize. And just like our accidents, just like our intentional thing, the intentional wrongs that we do, these unconscious things that we do result in individual fractures and personal scars. These things too personally affect us, but they also penetrate and contaminate our relationships with each other, our life and community together. And so God sets apart an entire day once a year to deal with the deeper ramification, this deeper ramification of the brokenness of our lives, the day of atonement. It's intended, if you will, as a deep, intensive, all-encompassing house cleaning. The centerpiece of the day's observance, if you don't remember it, involves two ways of dealing with the same problem, two ways of dealing with the problem of sin through the use of two goats. Goat one reflects the cost of sin, Engaging in death takes life, and sin takes life. The cost of sin is life. Therefore, a life for a life. A life is taken, the first goat. But goat two involves more hands-on engagement, if you will, with the root of the problem. Because cleanup is great. Acknowledging the wrong done is all well and good. But how are things right made right between us in terms of rebuilding trust? How do we ensure that the wrong won't remain at the center of the relationship? You ever had that experience where you've made amends for something, you've apologized, you've talked it out, and yet it still just keeps coming up? We dealt with this. We, I, look, I paid you back. I replaced it. I did this to make up for it. And it's like, yeah, but I still don't trust you. Yeah, but I'm still upset. Goat number two dealt with how do we ensure things are made right? How do we rebuild trust? And so the second goat became, as you probably know, the scapegoat. Hands were placed on the goat and all the sins of the people, all of it, everything, confessed out loud as the hands were laid on the goat. And the idea was putting it on the goat and someone becoming the goat, right? Putting it behind you by putting it on the goat and then that goat was led out of sight, All that remained between us was called out, gathered up, and placed on the goat, and then hauled to a place far, far away. And this was the understanding it's done, it's gone, it's forgotten, it's over, we're good. The scapegoat, if you will, bared the residual, the collection and removal of all the garbage, the muck and the grime from sin in our lives and our communities. This was the annual reset, the Day of Atonement. This along with what we started with, the sacrificial law, the system of the Levitical priesthood, is what the writer of Hebrews declares ultimately was weak and useless, and hence another priest, a different priest, one in the order of Melchizedek, needed to come. Well, giving that quick overview, we have to ask, in what sense was the old covenant ineffective? And he gives us two reasons. First, The sacrificial system itself, as spelled out in Leviticus, ends up just being a daily and an annual reset. The slate gets cleared daily, but then it ends up being full again by tomorrow. 
The ledger gets reconciled annually, but over the next 365 days, all that red ink comes right on back. Sacrifices repeated day after day, two goats being brought forth year after year, starts to feel like a vicious cycle. Rinse and repeat. Rinse and repeat. Rinse and repeat. Yesterday's offerings, in other words, are eclipsed by today's sins. And so the Levitical system ends up becoming nothing more than a Band-Aid, a stopgap. Human sins, plural, are being covered, but the problem of sin, singular, the problem of all of our rebellion, all of the guilt and the shame, intentional, unintentional, unconscious, all of our chaos and death is not being cleansed. As the writer will argue later in this this book, in this letter, he'll say it just simply this way, the blood of bulls and goats could not provide true atonement the real forgiveness, the actual restart that we needed. The ineffectiveness of the Levitical system is even reflected by those who are overseeing it, the writer goes on. This is his second point. Day after day, if you picture it in your mind, day after day, this was their job as the priests trudged back to the sanctuary to repeat the vicious cycle of the sacrificial system. The priests ran on this treadmill, not only for others, but just as much for themselves. They had their own sins to make sacrifices for, even as they tried to represent God before the people. And that the Levitical priests were prone to rebellion and plagued by the problem of sin, just like everybody else, became more apparent in the Levitical priesthood as eventually the priesthood mirrored the corruption within the kings of Israel as the priests eventually started cheating the people by offering lame and diseased animals for sacrifices and keeping the good livestock for themselves. That's why in Psalm 110, that messianic psalm that the writer of Hebrews quotes repeatedly, including in this passage, King David acknowledges, the author of that psalm, King David acknowledges this problem and through the Holy Spirit inspiring him, writes about the need for a priestly king after the order of Melchizedek. David prophetically anticipates the day when one will come who will be a priest king, like Melchizedek, but greater than Melchizedek. Where the kings of Israel failed, this king of kings will not. He will lead his people in righteousness. Where the priests of Israel failed, this great high priest will not, making everlasting peace by fully atoning for the sins of all the world. And that person is Jesus Christ. Something to be clear about here, because I know some of you are really sticklers. Something to be clear about here, in everything that the writer is saying, the coming of Jesus wasn't God's plan B. The coming of Jesus wasn't God's plan B. It was always God's plan A. When the writer of Hebrews speaks of the former Levitical priesthood being weak and useless, he is not suggesting that the old way was bad, that it didn't work and it needs to be replaced. The point is, the Levitical priesthood was always meant to be temporary, for the time being, if you will. The old sacrificial system was never intended to save us. It was designed to prepare us, to point us to our eventual salvation in Christ. All those centuries 
Centuries of offerings and sacrifices performed by generation after generation of priests were simply object lessons teaching humanity about the pervasiveness and the costliness of sin. The Lord was teaching us the basics. You can't appreciate the solution unless you fully understand the problem. Through precise instructions and detailed practices, our father was raising his children to recognize, to open our eyes and see just how precarious our existence is, just how broken we are. And in that visceral picture of Leviticus, which we find so primitive, so barbaric, so shocking, the bleeding of innocent animals, the smell of burnt offerings, the beautiful robes of the priests deliberately soiled with blood and oil, impossible to clean. In that visceral picture of Leviticus, God was giving us a visual illustration of what sin costs and what it takes to get clean. Sin draws blood, and blood, as Scripture says over and over again, is life. Sin takes life from us, and so the cost of sin is blood, the giving of life. But the sight of all those priests covered in blood, blood as much on their hands as it is on ours, reminds us that the cost of sin, covering the cost of sin, is well beyond our pay grade. We can't give back to God what we already owe. If we already owe God everything and we've taken from God what we already go, to give God back everything is to give him what it was his in the first place. We can't give back what we already owe. We're already dead in our sins. That was the point. So offering our lives meant nothing. Sin had irrevocably, deeply stained the perfectly created beings we were from the start, the moment God breathed life into us. And we can't clean up the mess of sin by ourselves because we're covered in that mess from head to toe. All we can do on our own, and this is why there's all these, these outlined procedures, because this is what we would do on our own. All we can do on our own is sweep it under the rug. Uh, there's nothing to see here. You ever clean your room that way? Stick it all in the closet, put it under the rug? All we can do on our own is make somebody else our scapegoat. Oh, not my fault, their fault. Them, those people, him, her. Put it on their heads. All we can do on our own is take our trash that we don't want to smell, that we don't want to see, take it out, dig a hole and dump it in the earth and make it landfill. That's what we do on our own. The former sacrificial law instilled within us a sensitivity about what redemption costs, what reconciliation involves, as well as a glimpse, a glimpse of what forgiveness looks like. And it did its job. It did its job. It worked in instilling within us one essential truth. That atonement is not, as we often talk about it, Atonement is not about us making amends for the wrongs we've done, as if we ever could. When you speak of atonement, it's not about us making amends for what we've done wrong, because we can't. Biblical atonement, making things right, is not about something we do, because we can't do anything. Atonement, biblical atonement, is about something done for us, something done to us, 
something done through us by God. And again, we can't truly value or share the cure, the gift of salvation, if we don't understand not only its cost, but also its true worth. So the change from the old covenant to the new wasn't a change from something bad to something good. You're missing the point if that's how you read this. The point is that it was a change from something good that served its purpose to something better, to simply the best. And it's the gospel. The gospel. The good news of the God who when something had to give and we had nothing to offer, gave himself. It is the good news of the God who wants more than a security deposit left on the altar, who desires to be in relationship with us, for us to live in him and with him now. It is the good news of the God who came down in the flesh in Jesus Christ, not just as our king of kings, but in taking on our humanity, becoming our great forever high priest who didn't need to make an offering for himself in order to be there for us, and therefore offers what no other priest could or can, a true, willing, perfect sacrifice, unnecessary for him, but completely needed by us. That's why the writer says Jesus saves us completely. All the Levitical sacrifices before Christ could never completely heal the human heart and mind. But Jesus' perfect sacrifice is enough. It's more than enough to fully mend the human spirit, to eventually restore the human condition forever. And he's going to expound on this in the chapters that follow. But this is why the writer of Hebrews here asserts that the death of Jesus is not simply one sacrifice among the many sacrifices of time. Offering himself on the cross is the only sacrifice to work of all time. His offering, as the writer puts it, is the once for all sacrifice, the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. And he goes even further. I love this. My favorite line in this passage. And through the power of an indestructible life, through his resurrection, Jesus doesn't just carry our sins bear our sins. He transforms our sin. Christ changes sin's ultimate manifestation, its net result, which is death, through his resurrection into life. Full, abundant, everlasting life that we can start to experience now. In fact, and I don't know if you caught this, it's right out the bat, we started reading The writer of this letter even implies, and he's going to say it explicitly later, he even implies that in Christ, our lives can become perfect. You see that? If perfection could have been attained, oh, oh, stop. So you're saying perfection's possible? If perfection could have been attained, so you're saying perfection's possible? And he will say that it's possible later. So let's just stop here for a second. Are you a perfectionist? Oh, come on, most self-aware perfectionists will own up to this tendency. I want to see some hands. Are you a perfectionist? Raise them high. Be proud. No, don't be proud, but just raise them high. And before the rest of you are like, no, I'm not a perfectionist, not me. Before everybody else is like, well, looking at the people who raise their hands, we ought to admit that everyone, everyone bears a streak of perfectionism in at least some aspect of their life. Whether it's through our physical appearance, how long do you take to put on your face? How long do you take to do your hair? 
How long do you fixate on what you're going to wear? Whether it's the level to which you try to maintain the spaces you occupy. Does your house look like it's more of a showpiece than lived in? Could you eat off your grass? Do you wash your car every single chance you possibly can? Or for some of us, our perfectionist streak is in how we engage our relationships. Do you seek to please others in order to please yourself? Is it important to you to keep everyone happy? Is it important to you to gain the respect, the appreciation of others? Are you striving to be the perfect spouse, the perfect son or daughter, the perfect mother or father, the perfect brother or sister, the perfect friend, the perfect pastor? (laughs) The quest for perfection is an itch that all of us can feel the need to scratch. We are all perfectionists in the sense that we want our lives to count for something. At some level, we all seek to make an acceptable offering of our lives. If not to God, then to contribute to the overall good, whatever that means. But try as we may, just like the priests of old, our offerings are never pure. They're never complete. They're never perfect. We still end up making a mess of our lives even when we are at our best. As we push ourselves to be, to give, to serve, and to do the right thing, deep down, we're all haunted by the sense that it's never enough. It's never enough. And in fact, some of us even stand in judgment over others. The people who are around us, who are closest to us, insisting that what they offer to us is just not enough. Not enough love, not enough support, not enough care, not enough time. Whether it's our own internal voice within us or it's the sound of someone else's voice directed at us, we all find ourselves on that treadmill for the quest for perfection, offering more and more day after day after day, rinse and repeat, but ending up always back at the same place. And in all our relentless human striving, we miss the fact that our creator's understanding of perfection is not the same as ours. Interesting thing, as it'll come up on the screen, the biblical word for perfection used here in verse 11, teleosi, teleosis, excuse me, teleosis, refers to not, does not refer to something we achieve. It's not talking about trying harder and harder and eliminating every wrong action, every wrong thought, every wrong motive. It's not about getting everything right. Biblically, perfection does not mean without flaws. It has to do with wholeness or completeness. Biblically, perfection has to do with everything being put into place for the final great purpose for it to be achieved. In other words, perfection is all things being made new, including us. That means perfection is not something we can achieve or accomplish. But what you're hearing, and you're going to hear more of it, is while we can't achieve perfection, we can be made perfect. In fact, In Christ, we are being perfected. We are being made whole. We are being made complete. We are being matured in Christ. Are you willing to be made new? Are you willing to be made new? Or has your definition, 
our definition of perfection? Has our quest to be perfect even overtaken our faith in Christ? Are you sitting here today still trying to be perfect for God? Are you still trying to be perfect for God? Maybe it's out of a lingering sense of guilt or shame or fear. I mean, God's grace is all fine and well. Thank you very much, Pastor Chris. God's grace is all fine and well, but I'm still determined to do something to make myself right with God, to pay him back, to merit his forgiveness, to prove that I've got what it takes. I've got it to be good enough. Are you still trying to be perfect for God? Maybe it's coming out of a growing sense of pride fueled by comparing yourself with others. God may not be keeping score, but you are. Of course you're saved by grace and all that. Yes, of course, grace. Yes, saved by grace, of course. But that doesn't mean that I can't try to be the very best Christian I can be, striving to show everyone what a dedicated, faithful, and true Christian looks like. To win people to Christ by having them notice Jesus in you. We don't just have the wrong definition of perfection. We don't just have the wrong definition. We think it's about getting everything right when it's really biblically about wholeness and completion. We don't just have the wrong definition of perfection. We also have the wrong focus in our pursuit of perfection. Once again, perfection is not about us. It's about him. Think of it this way. I want to say this slowly. In all our well-intentioned efforts, to get it all together for Jesus. In all of our well-intentioned efforts to get it all together for Jesus, to be perfect in following Christ, we get in the way of what Jesus is seeking to do for us. We end up trying to be a better version of us in Christ rather than letting Jesus work in us to make us our best selves through him. I'm gonna say that again. We end up trying to make a better version of us in Christ, rather than letting Jesus work in us to make us our best selves through him. I stand before you and I am not the perfect pastor. I am not a perfect person. I am not perfect but God knows how often I am tempted to try and act like I am. And yet there is not a single deed I do that is not untouched by my weakness. My best intentions, my well-laid plans rarely pan out. I easily lose focus. I forget stuff all the time. I forget what's important. I forget what matters. My self-determination and my resolve inevitably get worn down. There's not a moment when my brokenness does not become clear. There's not a day in which I do not fall from grace. And yet despite all of this, despite myself, despite my imperfections, By the grace of God, I am not defined by sin. That's the gospel. Thanks to Jesus' forever priesthood, his once-for-all sacrifice, who I was 
Who I am is not who I am becoming. I am a work in progress. (laughs) Boy, am I a work in progress. But thanks to the power of Jesus' indestructible life at work in me, my story is everlasting. Everlasting. Failure is never final. Resurrection, not death, is on my horizon. And not just when I take my last breath. Resurrection, not death, is on my horizon every time I fall flat on my face in embarrassment, in suffering, in loss, or even in shame. And my friends, it's the same for all of us. It's the same for all of us. It's the same for all of us who follow Jesus. It's the same for all of us who stop trying to be perfect and instead yield before a better way, a better hope. The one, the only one who can, the only one who is making us perfect. Perfectly forgiven. Perfectly reconciled. Perfectly loved. Perfectly true. Perfectly whole. All thanks to our perfect priest, Jesus Christ. Amen.